We continue with our series through 1 Peter this morning, not only with 1 Peter, but we'll also be looking at a portion of Peter's life from the Gospel of Mark. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 4, and then we'll continue with Mark 14. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 beginning 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came out and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I used to live in downtown Dallas. I loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the diversity. And I even loved the noise. I remember one night I woke up in the middle of the night to a bunch of honking outside of my window. Uh, now, that's not uh, that unusual for there to be honking in the middle of Dallas. Uh, but what made this particular honking so unique is that it seemed to be on repeat on a cycle. The honking would last for about 30 seconds, then it would stop, and then it would start up again. Honking, silence, honking, silence, honking, silence, honking, silence. And this went on for about 10 minutes until I just couldn't take it anymore, so I had to get out of bed, go to the window, and see what was happening. And there I realized that a man had fallen asleep at the wheel with his foot on the brake at the intersection of Ross and Lamar. And what was happening is that the, as the light was red, people were coming up behind him and they'd stop. And then the light cycle would happen. The light would turn green. They'd get impatient because the man wasn't moving. They would start to honk. Finally, they would get frustrated and pass him up. And then it would start all over again. Over and over and over and over. And then I heard another sound. Thump. 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 You see, my neighbors who were still trying to maybe live the college life at the age of 30 or so, some of you know what I'm talking about, they were throwing cans. They had opened their window and they were throwing cans at this man's car. And they were yelling at him. They were going, wake up, bro. Wake up. Wake up, bro. And still nothing. 
honking, and more thumps. And then I heard another sound, sirens, two cop cars and a fire truck. They blocked off the intersection, they got out and they began to bang on his window. Still nothing, he's asleep. Till finally a firefighter got out, this little device, I have no idea what it was, but what I can tell you is it made the worst high-pitched noise I've ever heard in my life. And they put it up against this man's window and finally he woke up. Now I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes. What would you have done? One minute is his sleep, the next minute he's woken up and he's surrounded by cops and firefighters. He's in the middle of downtown Dallas in his car. Can you imagine the shame and embarrassment he must have felt? How can anybody sleep through that? How can anybody sleep with that kind of commotion, that kind of urgency? Well, that's the problem with sleep, isn't it? You see, when we're sleepy, you could be asleep and have no idea what is going on around you. You could even be asleep and not even know it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what I want you to know this morning is that's where many of us find ourselves, if we're going to be honest. We find ourselves this morning asleep, maybe not physically, at least I hope not, but we find ourselves asleep emotionally, mentally. Most importantly, we find ourselves asleep spiritually, and we don't even realize it. You see, it's possible to say all of the right Christian things, do all of the right Christian activities, and yet be completely asleep down in our souls. And so this morning, Peter is calling out, the end of all things is at hand. Wake up. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. Wake up and keep watch. Peter's going to call us to keep watch in three ways. First, he's going to call us to be self-controlled. Second, he's going to call us to be sober-minded. And third, he's going to call us to pray with urgency. And these three ways, Peter will show us, not only in his letter, but also from his own life, why Jesus Christ calls us as Christians to wake up, to keep watch, and to pray. The first way we are called to keep watch is this. We are called to be self-controlled. Look with me at Peter's letter, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. Now before we get too far into it, we have to understand what Peter means by the end of all things is at hand. As Mark preached a couple weeks ago, no one knows the hour or the time that Jesus Christ is going to return. But what we do know is this, he is going to return. He promised us that he would come back. And so for Peter, this should fill us with a deep sense of urgency. He should know because he learned it the hard way. The Gospel of Mark tells us a story about Jesus on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look with me, Mark 14, verse 32. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here where I pray. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. You see, on this night, this particular night, the night before he was crucified, Jesus was filled with a deep sense of urgency. He knew that he was just hours away from the cross. And so he took his closest disciples with him into the garden, Peter, James, and John. And he asked them to stay awake with him, to stay up and to keep watch. Look what he says, verse 34. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to keep watch? Well, it means to stay awake, to stay alert, to be on guard. Literally in the Greek, to keep watch is to be sleepless. But the idea of keeping watch is not just a physical action. It's deeply spiritual. In verse 38, just after Peter, or Jesus finds Peter asleep, and he catches him asleep on the job. Notice what he says. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, keeping watch is not just primarily physical. The kind of watchfulness that Jesus is talking about is spiritual, a spiritual watchfulness. So let me ask you this. Why do you think Peter, James, and John failed that night? Why did they fall asleep? Was it just because they were just too tired? Or was it something deeper? You see, they had no idea what was about to happen. Deep down in their souls, though they were told by Jesus himself, they could not possibly fathom what was about to happen, that Jesus Christ, their teacher, their Lord, was about to lay his life down for the sins of the world on the cross. And they had no idea. They did not grasp the urgency of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And so when Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled, this is what he's talking about. Have the self-control to stay awake. Have the self-control to keep watch. You see, I think it's interesting that the Bible compares our sinfulness to sleepiness. It's a powerful metaphor if you think about it. I don't know if you've ever gone a few days without sleep, but you can see how just how powerful sleep really is. It holds a sway over us unlike any other thing. My wife, Jenny, and I have a seven-week-old at home right now. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it's our third. I can now understand why sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Right? It's a powerful thing. So it is with our sin. It holds sway over us. And so if you think about the idea of self-control, if you do not have self-control, then what it means necessarily is that something else is controlling you. Let me say that again. If you don't have self-control, what it means is something else is controlling you. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you sin, then know this, you are enslaved to sin. So it's not just enough that we think about the ways that we sin. The question is this, how does your sin control you? What are you controlled by? Are you controlled by greed? Are you controlled by lust? Are you controlled by comparison? Are you controlled by fear? This morning, Jesus Christ calls out to you. He says, wake up. 
Wake up. Hear these words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine his light upon you. Second, the second way we are called to keep watch is to be sober-minded. Again, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, notice what Peter says. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, what does it mean to be sober-minded? He's not just talking about alcohol. He's talking about a deeper sense of sobriety. To be sober-minded is to have sound judgment. Right? It's to be engaged. It's to be thoughtful. I think R.C. Sproul Jr. put it best when he said that to be sober-minded is to treat truth seriously. To be sober-minded is to treat truth seriously. Does that describe us this morning? Do we treat the truths of Jesus Christ seriously? Or do we take all of this for granted? Again, look with me at the Garden of Gethsemane. Because what we're going to see is it's entirely possible to know the truth and yet be numb to it at the same time. Verse 40, it says that again, Jesus found the disciples sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And so he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. You see, Jesus already told the disciples what was going to happen. Just several chapters before this. Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer many things. That he would be rejected. That he would be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. The disciples heard the truth of the gospel, yet they were completely numb to it. And if you know the story, you know that actually Peter was so numb to it that just after this, he pulled Jesus aside and he rebuked him for saying that he had to suffer and die on the cross. They were numb. Again, look with me. Once, twice, three times they fall asleep. And after the third time, Jesus wakes them up again. And what do the disciples do? They're stunned. It says they did not know what to answer him. They were numb. If the disciples did not take the cross of Christ seriously, then we have to ask ourselves, how are we taking the return of Christ seriously? Are you alert? Are you on guard? Are you keeping watch or have you been lulled into a spiritual slumber? Do you find yourselves being numb? In 2002, author and anthropologist Thomas Dezengadida, he wrote an essay called The Numbing of the American Mind. And this is what he said. He said, ever notice when your hand is numb and everything feels thin even a solid block of wood lacks depth and structure. And so you can't feel the wood. Your limb just encounters the interrupting surface. Well, numb is to the soul as thin is to a mediated world. What's he saying? He's saying our world has a way of numbing our souls. And though he is no Christian... In fact, I think he would be horrified to know if he was quoting a sermon this morning. 
I think he's absolutely right. Our world has a way of numbing our souls to the truth. Sometimes we are numb because of pain, because of brokenness. We feel abandoned by God, we feel wounded, and so we are left numb. We know the truth, it's just so hard to trust it, so hard to believe it, and so we find ourselves in a sanctuary like this this morning, singing all the songs, reading all the liturgy, listening to a sermon, but we don't feel a thing. We feel numb. Or the other way, sometimes we are numb. It's not from brokenness, but from blessing. See, we have learned to self-medicate with blessing. We self-medicate with all kinds of things, with television and social media, with sports and success and power and prestige, comfort, career, family, all kinds of things. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that these things are evil. I'm just saying it's possible to pursue the good things in life and find that they have supplanted pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. So where do you find yourself this morning? Are you numb to the truth? How would you know? How do we know if we are numb? Well, let me tell you what has been convicting in my own life as I've thought about this question. The way that you know that you are numb is from the way that you pray. So the last thing this morning, we're called to pray with urgency. Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Peter calls us to be sober-minded because he knows it will radically change the way that we pray. To keep watch and pray go hand in hand. This is what Jesus told his disciples in the garden. He said, keep watch and pray. And so Peter's failure in the garden was not just that he fell asleep. It's that he failed to pray. Why? Because he had no sense of urgency. He had no sense of urgency. He did not realize what Jesus Christ is about to do. Just in the same way we don't realize that Jesus Christ is going to return. Have you ever prayed with urgency? Have you ever prayed with urgency? I promise you have. We all have. Even an atheist knows how to pray urgently. That moment when you get pulled over, right? And you see lights in the back of your rearview mirror. Or when you lose a job. When you find yourself with a hard diagnosis in a hospital room. Or when there's only one out left in the World Series and Nelson Cruz at the back wall. <laughs> Still hurts, doesn't it? When do you pray the most? Is it when life is hard? Or was it when life was easy? You see, we pray when we feel urgent, when we feel desperate, when we reach the end of ourselves, but when we find that life is manageable, we become comfortable, don't we? We get lulled into a spiritual slumber and we cease to pray. So how do we wake up? How do we regain our sense of urgency? Brothers and sisters, you must be awakened by the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again and again. See, ultimately, Gethsemane is not a story about Peter's failure to pray for Jesus. Gethsemane is a story about Jesus' prayer for Peter in the midst of his failure. There he was in the garden and Jesus prayed, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. There has not been a more urgent prayer ever prayed 
Remove this cup from me. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of wrath that was to be poured out on you and on me as a punishment for our sin. Isaiah, the prophet, said it this way. Isaiah 51, he said, wake yourself. Wake yourself and stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus was called to drink our cup and to drink it to the dregs. And he knew it. And so he prayed on your behalf, on my behalf, on Peter's behalf. He prayed, not what I will, but yours be done. That we find ourselves spiritually asleep this morning, complacent, wayward, Jesus Christ took the cup that was due to you and he drank it every last drop. He prayed for you. Not what I will, but yours be done. And what I want you to understand is that he is praying for you still. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that our Savior Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us You see, Jesus Christ did not fall asleep that night in the garden, and he is still not asleep. He is keeping watch for you. He is praying over you. No longer in a garden on the eve of his crucifixion, but Christ is praying for you on a throne on the eve of his return. And he is calling out to you, wake up. Wake up. Keep watch. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Jesus Christ, the one who took our cup for us, is going to return. And when he does, he will make all things new. So keep watch and pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who has given us this gracious invitation to join him in prayer, to commune with him in fellowship, to now come to the table. Father, as we come to this table, would you use it to remind us of the grace and goodness of the gospel? Would you use it to stir our souls, to invigorate us, to wake us up again? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.